Welcome to Biota.org Conversations. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Gerald de Jong, a returning guest to this podcast, and also Pedro Ferreira, a new uh, contributor to this podcast series. Gerald, since we last spoke to you, there have been a number of developments with Darwin at home. Could you fill in the podcast listeners with regards to this? Yeah, I've been uh, I've been working on sort of uh, congealing the ideas of how to make it... Um, First of all, a system where the creatures encounter each other, but also somehow to integrate uh, sensory uh, activity as well as motor activity. So what I've did, what I've done is I've gone basically back to uh, where it all came from, the the actual uh, elastic interval that everything is is based on, and I've sort of uh, been thinking about ways to program the elastic interval itself so that it becomes a kind of a cell that uh, during its lifetime differentiates into either muscular function, the way everything works right now, or sensory function, or perhaps even uh, some sort of brain function. So um, the idea is that a cell has uh, a number of ways to do what it wants to do. It has an ability to um, sense the environment. It also has the original ability of acting like a muscle, but uh, everything it does costs something. So it's, it costs uh, what I'm calling life quanta. It probably sounds fairly familiar to you, Tom, in some way or other. Most certainly, yes. In fact, I have a couple of questions just here. When we did the uh, biota.org interviews piece with you last year, we talked about the idea of there being reproductive cells as well, or reproductively specialized parts. Have you considered that in your most current model? I uh, no, not uh, not reproductively specialized parts. I do have uh, a number of what I consider to be sensible uh, specializations, including one that that sounds quite unusual, which is uh, a fat muscle base, or you know, a fat uh, cell, like a storage cell. Yeah, like all it does is it stores, uh, you know, it stores life basically. You know, so it just sits there, and instead of doing something and spending, it just doesn't spend, it just saves. So that's, you know, that's a, an interesting specialization, but I don't see any need for reproductive, uh, you know, apparatus per se, because I don't think it adds anything to it. What I'm doing with respect to that is uh, a, a coalition of these uh, presumably uh, differentiated cells working together will make up a body, and... Um, um, some of them are able to see, some of them are able to think, but they have to, for example, um, they have to rent memory space. So that will keep them economical on, on, uh, on, on the amount of memory they, uh, they use up. And uh, they, they, can, they can also just become eyes, or temporarily become eyes. So there's this whole flow of, uh, of sort of life tokens that are flowing through them, and they can spend them as they see fit. Terrific. Now, this also lends itself to there being a, a number of entities in a single environment. Is this what you're talking about as well? Yeah, I'm going to put them all in one environment so that they can, um, so that they can interact and, uh, and have the survival of the fittest happening in a context like that instead of the sort of more synthetic context that I've been uh, uh, doing the evolution so far. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, reproductive organs. The way I plan to do the... Um, the uh, replication idea because there's no need to have you know a womb or, or anything like that what I'm going to do is uh, make it so that they have to save up life points in order to uh, you know basically have permission to replicate but replication is just something they can request from the world 
Fascinating, fascinating. Now, in terms of time frames, what are you envisaging in terms of implementation, and when will this actually be available for for users to download and tinker with? I've been uh, I've been uh, working really sort of hard on getting the specification down for how these things can be programmed because that's really what it all comes down to. You have a sort of a programming model from the point of view of one individual cell, which in Darwin at Home is an elastic interval. And from its point of view, it can do a number of things. It can, for example, spend a lot of energy to uh, peek into the environment and make an observation. It can also spend a little bit of energy um, adjusting its length, therefore becoming a muscle. It might also spend its energy um, storing data and thinking about what that data is because it has to pay uh, points, you know, life points in order to store data. So that means it won't be able to play the role of a muscle as well. You know, so they, they will have to specialize. And so you have a coalition of cells which make up a body and it's the coalition that survives or doesn't. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I look forward to future podcasts and continuous updates with regards to this development, Gerald. It sounds sounds all very exciting. Now, Pedro, I got you involved in this podcast in particular because it's on open source. And whilst I've known and worked with you for a period of about a year, and you can give an introduction with regards to that, I wanted you to contribute particularly because you have worked with a number of open source projects, and you also have a, a broader sense of the philosophy of individual versus corporate in open source. Can you give some introduction to who you are and some background to that as well, please? Okay. So I'm an informatics engineering student uh, from Portugal, um, currently finishing my degree. Um, so uh, I became interested in a life uh, maybe, well, two years ago or so uh, when I first to contact with artificial intelligence and then uh, I then I saw Noble Ape and uh, I got involved so I've been involved uh, in a life for for approximately more than a, uh, a year so I I got involved in Noble Ape primarily because it was an open source project as a matter of fact I, I, I looked it up in in SourceWorks that's how I found it. So I I believe that open source and uh, Noble Ape is is a, a living proof of that. Uh, open source should act as a way of sharing knowledge, of uh, providing knowledge uh, to to other people and help them uh, solve their 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 problems without. Uh, you know, reinventing the wheel. Uh, in the other hand, like you you said before, there's the corporate uh, uh, open source phenomenon that appeared maybe ten years ago, not so much, um, when big corporations start uh, started putting money in open source communities so that um, they could benefit from the the open source development process and user contributions. So the topic for today is how does uh, open source benefit artificial life or is open source good for artificial life fundamentally? And I need to point out, Gerald, your Darwin at home is also open source. Gerald, what's your thinking with regards to open source and artificial life? To me, uh, you know, artificial life is is uh, something that 
you know, if you develop the curiosity for it, there's just uh, there's there's an endless uh, domain to explore. And if you've got some some pieces of code available that that have already you know done a lot of the uh, searching that you would probably end up doing yourself in the first while, if if that's out there, I mean, it's it just makes so much sense to have that spreading around. I, I you know, the whole thing is about curiosity and you know satisfying curiosity. And it's you must uh, probably agree that you know the the code is is what it's about. It's like uh, you know there's there's a sort of a poetic element to it. Certainly, I think as Pedro has discussed, there are two components to open source. One is what the individual developers. I always think of them as kind of software engineers, but what the individual developers see in the source code. But there is also a corporate component to this as well, and this is something in reflecting on this question that I've thought about quite a bit, that the examples in artificial life that have been successful, and I'm thinking of potentially a future spool with World Right, but all his existing Maxis products to date, even though we can debate whether they are actually artificial life or not, but more importantly, Steve Grant's Creatures, which is the kind of quintessential artificial life project and got Steve Grant a wide variety of accolades and certainly uh, evangelized artificial life for a number of years. That was a, a closed source model as well. So it, it is a question about what uh, open source gives to artificial life in terms of artificial life developers, but in terms of getting the message of artificial life out, is there a, is there a paradox where a certain amount of money and employees and things like that are actively needed or is it something that an open source community can also flip? What's your thinking on this, Pedro? Well, I believe uh, an open source community can can develop uh, an, an artificial life project with, you know, with uh, without the the minimum problem. It's, you know, it's okay. We, we must admit you you need you need some some background knowledge. You you need some uh, scientific knowledge. Uh, but once you have the um, the primary tasks defined, and once you you know what you want to do and how you're gonna do it, you know it's it's a matter of work. So you, you can you can gather people from from a bit around the world and gather them and uh, make them work together in order to 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 make uh, the the product as they would do it. Uh, other software with any other software product. I believe that this question of open source versus closed source, okay, it's 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 true that many of the artificial life uh, products out there uh, are many of the successful ones are closed source, but maybe they are not so scientifically acceptable as uh, an academic project, uh, an open source project would be, uh, I don't know if you're, you're getting me, it's just, it's, it's a matter of, you know, revealing how you're doing it and the scientific value of, of that knowledge you're, you're using. So if you have a closed source project and you do not reveal at least how it works or the, ba the basis it uses to to work. Um, it has no scientific value because people will look to it as just another game. So I believe it's also a matter of of value. And an open source community uh, will produce documentation and will normally produce you know 
wikis and and user documentation and code documentation and that's a way of uh, exposing the, the internals of the simulation and making it scientifically you know accessible yeah accessible and uh, people will be able to to ev evaluate it and and say okay this is this is a good idea and this is biologically correct and it resembles pretty much what happens in nature uh, or no no this is just garbage and it works as a regular game tom can i ask you can I ask you a question do you do you know what happened with creatures did it ever become or is it is it always been a great success or has it never been a great success because i haven't seen it around except uh, when i was in england some some years ago did it survived is it a big thing still my understanding with creatures when i was in the uk it was a huge phenomenon in the uk and my understanding and certainly looking at the mailing lists associated with it there was a huge user base at a particular time what fascinates me about the creatures phenomenon is that they addressed a lot of the concerns that pedro had in terms of scientific credibility by actually using the money that they'd earned through creating creatures and employing scientists and these scientists went on to publish academic papers that they had produced from research that they had produced while they were at CyberLife. So what they used in some regard in order to address Pedro's concerns was to create a commercial product, obviously get funding initially for the creation of the commercial product, but turn that funding into employing scientists that then went on to publish papers and things like that. Now, I've not had any primary contact with Steve Grant. My only contact was with a fellow who I was interviewed with on BBC Radio for Rick Colasanti. Ricardo, yes, Ricardo Colasanti. And he had worked at CyberLife for, I don't know, a period of a few years at least, and told a number of stories about how Steve Grant had been highly successful initially in terms of getting in a, a brain trust, so to speak. Now, in terms of how Creatures has continued, there was an open source movement for a period of time to take, and this again is my own understanding, to take the, pub the papers that had been published academically and translate that to an open source model. When I came to investigate this probably about four years ago, because I was fascinated by the successes that the Creatures model had had. Steve Grant received an MBE from the Queen. I mean, in, in terms of accolades, Steve Grant, I think, is questionably, but still probably one of the, the best examples of successes in artificial life. And how that translated in a long-term sense, my understanding now is that Steve Grant talks almost exclusively on AI, but still has strong artificial life interests. And if Steve Grant or anyone who knows Steve Grant is listening to this podcast, I would love to have him on the podcast to ask him that question specifically. But I think the creature's model was successful in a kind of medium-term sense by translating some of the funding that Steve had received and some of the profits that he made into actively employing scientists. So whilst the source code remained closed, and in interviews that I've read of Steve and heard of Steve, he's always said it was because it was kind of hackery coding and he didn't want to kind of put that out to some kind of scrutiny. I've, I remember reading that in one interview, although I can't reference sources. But it was an interesting model that he was able to take a corporate 
source model and address the initial concerns with regards to academic credibility and extraordinarily successfully. I mean, if you look at New Scientist and all the um, mainstream science publications that covered uh, his stuff as well as the academic publications uh, that they, they published in on creatures-related stuff, he was able to translate this very successfully in a medium-term context. Now, ten years on, there are still mailing lists that persist, there is still a user group, I was subscribed to it for a period of time and, and viewed some of the interactions in terms of the user base. There are still people that are very passionate about creatures. It has a wiki, an active wiki that people still contribute to. So I don't know whether it was just a UK phenomenon. I don't know the, the background history with regards to the kind of long-term success. But in the short term and medium term, uh, Steve Grand was very successful in, in translating initially funding and then profit back into producing something that had scientific credibility or at least appeared to have scientific credibility for, for popular science purposes and scientific publication. Although, obviously, CyberLife is no, no longer a, a functioning entity, I think it is an interesting example of how artificial life can operate and be highly successful in a closed-source model. So, does that answer your question, Gerald? Yeah, I, 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 that you that CyberLife does uh, no longer operates was was more or less uh, the question. It, it probably um, yeah, interesting that, that it went that way. Interesting, also his reasons for staying closed source. <laughs> well, I think it was I think it was a flip comment. I don't know necessarily whether that was yeah. I, have you, uh, Tom? Have you ever seen Nintendogs on the on the Nintendo DS? No, I haven't. But I'm familiar with the phenomenon because I had some connection with Bandai, who produced the Tamagotchis. So uh, I'm f I'm familiar with that as being a potential artificial life model. For the for the benefit of the podcast listeners, can you expand on that and some of your ideas about that? Well, uh, my my daughter has one, so <laughs> I've seen it operate, and I've seen her become quite attached to it. So. Um, it's just fascinating. I mean, when you see um, the 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 sort of degree of realism they've uh, they've managed to accomplish in in the in the behaviors and the gestures and and you know the the, the timing on everything and the movements and they've you know they've come a long way to uh, to obviously compellingly uh, you know imitate the behavior of a puppy for for a little uh, a little kid. Do you think this is a direction for, for proprietary or even open source artificial life? Well, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, remember last last time we talked a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Dave Kerr, he was talking about uh, uh, you know what what his uh, his idea of it was that you know we're making pets. So, in terms of the existing brain trust that is in uh, open source artificial life, do you see any directions that could be taken either, well, with the stuff of, of any of the people that you've you've observed that could be taken in this direction? In, in this direction, you mean uh, in the sort of the commercial game sort of environment? Andy Phelps is a good example of this because he's he has feet in many different communities, but his interest in artificial life is moving the the brain trust that exists in artificial life currently into something that is highly uh, commercially viable. And this is what's interesting, that we are, in some regard, in, in part of our simulated environments or whatever we're creating, there are pet-like elements, and this component could easily be extracted and then put into some API that a company like Nintendo may be, may be very receptive to. What's your thinking in terms of the, the strategic movement for this, and how does open source benefit that? If you look at, uh, one, one interesting thing about open source is when you look at uh, which projects were the, were the most hugely successful, uh, it's the ones that are um, 
for, on the one hand, they represent infrastructure, and on the other hand, they are, you know, inherently pluggable. You know, there are many things plug into them. Uh, you know, there are, there are a number of examples, like uh, the Apache web server is probably the best example, uh, or um, the asterisk uh, telephony uh, server. These things are, you know, they're made to be pluggable. And in the artificial life uh, environment, you can imagine a similar sort of pluggability. And if, if that's accomplished, then you, you can, you know, you can imagine sort of being able to do all sorts of diverse experiments on the same, on the same foundation. And, and open source lends itself for that because it's, uh, you know, inherently good at maintaining architecture. Uh, sorry, uh, infrastructure. I do, I do not believe the, uh, at first that the, the pet phenomenon uh, will be, you know, very helpful for, for artificial life. It's, okay, it's a funny thing and it's, um, you see some, some of those pets are used as, as experiments for, for m more serious things. But I don't see them as a, a big, a big step for, for artificial life. Or, Pedro, you yeah? talked about the the scientific value of artificial life. Could you uh, could you mention a bit more about what you see as sort of the, uh, the the scientific value? What what kind of um, artificial life elements are of interest in in the scientific community? I believe that uh, in in artificial life you you've got maybe two two different uh two 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 different uh communities you, you have those who believe in evolution after all and you have the uh, you know i believe it was discussed in the last podcast the, is artificial life all about evolution and you have you know other people who try to stimulate human and animal behavior without you know that kind of uh, evolutionary philosophy but um, based on more abstract things like thought and uh, you know more um, more complex things so it's very hard to say when a specific kind of knowledge is valuable or not uh, but when you're when you're working on stuff that even in uh, in real biology and real life, you do not know uh, how it works, like the human mind, like the the behavior of even the behavior of a simple animal. It's it's maybe it's too much speculation trying to to simulate that behavior based in in purely mathematical expressions in any kind of expression that you that you find that you believe that fits that uh, behavior so it's kind of hard to to define what's scientifically valuable and this is part, another part of the reason that i got pedro involved in this podcast we got a lot of positive feedback from the last podcast and i think the series is going to continue just on the momentum of the first podcast in some regard but the feedback that I got from Pedro, which is really what I was trying to caveat in the last podcast, although I was rather tired, was the idea that there are a number of phenomena that exist in the real world which are attached to life other than evolution, uh, which also come through in artificial life development. And 
it's certainly my own experimentation, as I said in the last podcast, evolution was a kind of secondary component that wasn't explicitly programmed initially, but did come through through long-term simulation. But what interests me in artificial life was things like communication, ideas of community, the uh, bioids example perfectly, that you get flocking behavior through these kind of implicit communications that occur. I mean, these kind of ideas. So my thought with artificial life, um, particularly in the context of what it is, that there are so many different components that make it up. Now, part of these, a number of these components are actually highly relevant to contemporary both science and social science. What interests me in interviewing Paul Johnson in particular was here you have a political scientist that is using swarm modelling methods in order to solve political, fundamentally political science problems. The movement between, particularly in things like psychology and sociology, but the movement between group characteristics and what is the mind and the fringes of biology, and I have friends that are computational biologists that do delve into this area as well, although they won't call themselves artificial life folk, and there are applied components, and this um, returning to Rick Colasanti, uh, having been interviewed on BBC4 with Rick Colasanti, who had worked at, at CyberLife, he came back to me and he said, what you have here is exactly what I'm looking for in terms of visualization, in terms of all these other components that are highly useful to my research. And this is the feedback that I've gotten from real living, breathing scientists with regards to Noble Ape, that there are a number of components which are useful for what they're doing in terms of visualization and in terms of things like AI and how that motivates, you know, ripping out the ape's brain and putting in their own AI models. There are so many Vens here and some of these Vens are actually respected sciences. But another question that I wanted to put out is the idea that bricks and mortar science, and this comes into open source as well, bricks and mortar science is very useful for things like funding, for respectability, for all these kind of secondary things that really we touch on when we talk about open source as well, the things that are difficult in open source, because obviously there's a corporate model of open source which is fundamentally about, well, I don't want to say use and abuse, but like that. And if there is a bricks and mortar idea of what science is, science is, is faculties, it's buildings, it's institutions, it's a cash flow, it's funding. So there are just so many directions to this. Is it, would it be possible to have some sort of idea of what branches of science um, are interesting in artificial life? What you just said uh, was, uh, was almost surprising for me because you described the, the sort of the value of the sociological uh, modeling that goes on. Uh, that, that was sort of a surprise to me, but I'm just curious if you think there are branches of science that are that would would be you know most uh, would consider artificial life to be most relevant besides from ai of course which is sort of uh, a no-brainer people immediately associate artificial life with biology i think there is some overlap with various aspects of biochemistry and physics as well i think there are some aspects as we've said with regards to psychology sociology even political science interviewing paul johnson was fascinating because as as you asserted i too was very surprised that people are actively using artificial life models in the social sciences in these kind of ways. There's, in fact, a history of it. It's not just Paul Johnson. There are a number of people that have used Swarm in particular in order to get real-world, you know, mapping onto theoretical world data out from artificial life. So 
I don't like limiting my thinking anymore in terms of what artificial life is useful for in terms of where it maps into the sciences and the social sciences. But what I don't like doing is constraining it currently in terms of saying it's about this thing, it's about biology, it's about you know uh, something that comes purely through AI. Really, it's more a philosophy that uh, people actively assert. So it's this idea that there are a group that don't say that they're artificial life. Uh, we all do, fundamentally, I think, by using the term artificial life, have a somewhat idealistic view about what it is. And what I find curious in the sciences in particular is the people that don't want to be doing artificial life. They don't? Okay, so which, which disciplines don't want to use it? So I'm, in fact, reversing your question there, Gerald. Well, I can, I can, I can imagine uh, in physics that you might not be, uh, you know, uh, able to do much with a hypothesis in a, in a, in an artificial life scenario. But they are physical environments. They're they're pseudo pseudo physical. Okay, exactly. No, they're simulated physical environments, and this is what interests me in terms. We'll bring in Bruce Damer in a while because he simulates lunar and, and Martian environments. And these kind of environments, to put artificial life in there in the context of robotics or in the context of could humans survive there, can we send chimpanzees up there? I mean, there are these kind of contexts as well, which I find fascinating in terms of really asking the question, what isn't artificial life? And in terms of physics, okay, so it's not explicitly artificial life, but artificial life in a simulated environment, the simulated environment component actually can lead back into physics. Lead back into a, a hypothesis that you can uh, that you can propose. I mean, it's it's because of because of its because it's sort of. Like, I mean, I can't quite imagine you know using something like Noble Ape or something like Darwin at home for uh, you know doing neutrino studies or something. Certainly, obviously. Well, physics is a huge discipline, as all these. I mean, biology too. I mean, there are, there are obviously components of biology that don't vent in, into artificial life at all. Maybe maybe there is applied component. Maybe what we are actually talking about here is that in the applied parts of all these sciences, there is a Venn component that goes into artificial life through the simulation component of artificial life. Well, I believe the artificial life case is somewhat similar to the to the bioinformatics case. You know that you now everybody uses the bioinformatics the bioinformatics term for uh, for defining uh, a, a broad uh, a broad set of uh, processes and techniques uh, but in in the past you had uh, you know uh, genetic engineering and computational uh, genetics and uh, you know it's 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 not you, you cannot okay I, i'll bring here once again the question uh, of the of the, defini the definition of a life, you, I don't know if you can define a life as a, a science, uh, like you could, you, like you can do with physics and mathematics, because a life, like like you said, uh, just grabs small small bits of other sciences and melts them together uh, in order to to simulate and to 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 pr produce environments. But it's pretty like the the bioinformatics case. You you have genetics, you have DNA sequencing, and you have uh, biochemistry. And some people will say, "Okay, I'm not working on bioinformatics. I'm working on biochemistry or uh, uh, DNA sequencing." But 
according to 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 some definitions they're working actually in bioinformatics w without knowing that um so i believe the same happen happens with a life because both uh grab grab uh, some some knowledge from from different fields of the the scientific spectrum it's not a pure fusion between physics and biology or uh, something like that when no you have elements of physics biology uh, mathematics uh, ai uh, so many things so you cannot you 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 cannot define it in a in a particular way this idea of a life as being parasitic science i think is fascinating but the informatics example the bioinformatics example is interesting because my understanding of the history of it is that it formed itself as a thing of respect through substantial corporate funding that it in fact in its fledgling stages was a series of ideas that were very quickly capitalized on in a research context very heavily funded and this ultimately justified its existence within a number of universities as artificial life in terms of its academic and open source context there is always this problem with regards to funding and validity through money and these kind of things Well, unfortunately, in the nature of podcasting, Gerald has to to leave us currently, and we are picking up Bruce Damer, the founder of Biota.org, as well, to continue the discussion with open source. Gerald, do you have any concluding comments on open source and the directions of artificial life in that context? Well, I think what we what we've got to do is we've got to look at the uh, the idea of pluggability. I'm sure Bruce would agree on this that uh, the to be to create a sort of a an environment that um, allows people to plug in their ideas and and save themselves you know reinventing wheels then uh, then we will have accomplished something and any any final thoughts with regards to Darwin at home until we next discuss this final thoughts well there's more to come there's um, there's a, a number of things I still have to describe I could uh, I'd like to uh, recommend that people go listen to the lightest podcast because it's <laughs> I explain it all and uh, <laughs> and I'm continuing on it's it's starting to get more fun because I think it's uh, it's really interesting to explore the idea of uh, a situation where only coalitions survive so Bruce welcome to the podcast for people not familiar with your work since we last spoke what has what has gone on in digital space and and where are things currently well digital space has done uh, pretty much almost all aspects of simulation of uh, nasa's new uh, space architecture which would be uh, returning to the moon robotically and then followed by by crewed missions and we're even working on things surrounding asteroids and so we've we've done design real time 3D design simulations of these missions so that the internal NASA people can uh, iterate their ideas for how to uh, return to the moon or go to asteroids or just extend human reach into solar system. Now we touched on a little earlier the idea of simulating artificial life in space and the kind of stuff that you were doing with digital space on lunar and martian environments and creating artificial life environments on those terrains on those environments what is your thinking on that in terms of maintaining everything open source and getting all that working together well the interesting thing is we've seen we've all seen for the last 10 or 15 years is is that uh, unlike the web now, for instance, you can look in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s and 80s, there was a million document formats. Um, 
SGML document formats for publishing systems for PCs, for Macs, for Unix workstations. And then completely unexpectedly came this uh, great thing, the web, which was a very, very simple architecture. Uh, and there was an economic, pressing economic need to move those documents or somehow represent them on the web. And that created this glue mechanism uh, that created a, a standard. Now we see XML coming into the web, and then it poured itself now into Microsoft Office, and everybody's using XML. So effectively, we've kind of a, a previously stovepiped uh, environment, which was 2D documents, got moved into much more of an integrative common environment. But with 3D in the 90s, as, as we've all seen, uh, these stovepipes are very narrow. They're one engine for one massive multiplayer game platform, one little simple 3D scene graph for an A-Life experimental platform, and then, as we've seen with digital space, you know, we do our platform to do robotics on the moon, and that's very specific and does these good things. But is it of interest to a multiplayer game company? No, it isn't. Uh, on the other hand, we see um, perhaps Second Life is kind of a possibly the Microsoft word of 3D. If they're going to really say, we're open sourcing our client, you know, they're not open sourcing their grid or their server yet. But they're saying that because we want to establish a de facto uh, standard for getting at multi-user uh, 3D space, and we have the user base. Maybe they're making this play for becoming the Microsoft Word, which is on every platform. It's really too soon to say. Uh, the investment, the return on investment, sort of the investment return you get from doing 3D is a lot lower from than from writing documents. You know, you write a a document, an invoice, you get paid. If you write a bunch of content for an open source 3D plugin or 3D client, uh, it goes into the general pool of the community and it's cool and it's neat, uh, but does it give you a, a return and, and, and drive your need to do more and more 3D? Uh, so it's hard to say. So I guess, you know, prior to going up to, to Linden Labs on February 8th and t sitting down and talking to them about how the open source uh, could impact the biota efforts or vice versa, uh, getting some biota experiments going on inside Second Life. You know, one has to consider, you know, is Second Life going to be around, going to be acquired, etc.? cetera? Uh, does the open sourcing of the client guarantee their presence uh, into the future? The stuff that you've done so far with digital space, if you wanted to put artificial life, uh, an artificial life simulation using the moon as the simulation environment. Is digital space the place to go to? Is the fact that you already have a, a lunar simulation, you already have some physics associated with the dust and things like that. Is that the starting point or do you think there is another approach? If you say wanted to create a whole lot of creepy crawly creatures, kind of like Carl Sims, you know, physics-based creatures, and evolve good climbers for the moon or good rovers for the moon, you know, you really wouldn't need you could easily do it in digital spaces. There's a full Python API uh, so that one could use Python script to talk to the platform. There's a full C++ plugin architecture, the whole bit. And not only that, you know, as time goes by, we get higher and higher fidelity simulations of what the lunar surface really is like. So evolving good robots for the moon through an A-life mechanism, yep, we're, we're it. Uh, Evolving 
fun alife creatures like growing plants and and run barking dogs and running cats um, you probably need to have a multi-user environment with people who are stimulating or or otherwise selecting out uh, the cool plants and the cool creatures you would need something like Second Life that has users in it and a lot of rich content. Now you've, you've raised a couple of issues and I can feel Pedro chapping at the bit with regards to the ideas of individuals contributing in an open source uh, environment versus the corporate open source model which obviously Linden Labs is, is starting in terms of opening their client but we've also seen with regards to companies like IBM, Hewlett Packard, Apple where they have a, a corporate component and an open source component that reaches out to the open source community. Pedro, in terms of this idea of the individual versus the, the corporation in this kind of open source contribution, you're a historian in this regard. You have a good background in terms of understanding these issues. Can you kind of summarize them for the podcast? You mean the issues between individual open source and corporate-based open source? Well, as an individual open source developer going to the Second Life client, the kind of issues that you have in terms of your time contribution, your, your energy, and how this is used in a corporate context, can you give some discussion to that? So I'm, I'm a great supporter of open source, and I, I find it great that the guys, on, the guys in Linden Labs have released the, the source code for, for the client. I feel that there's still some support lacking, you know, regarding they they still don't have a, 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 a true open source community. I believe it's also a matter of time, and so I do not, I cannot tell you now if uh, it would be rewarding to to take part in in the in the second life open source effort. Because you still do not have any uh, guarantee that your your work will be will be useful or your work will be used for the community's benefit and not only for Second Life's benefit in this case. So I believe that uh, first there must be a strong community, some uh, open source projects related to the. Uh, to the game itself, perhaps some some integrations between uh, existing projects and Second Life, so that a regular user base ca can be built. And then, yes, probably uh, you you will have people working on it, developing it. But for now, you have one one guarantee at least. You have the code there; it's licensed uh, under GPL, so whatever they do in the future, you may fork the client. Now, the, the, there's an interesting point here that may be missed for people not familiar with open source development, that it isn't just a matter of putting source code online under an open source license. There needs to be almost a contract with the community. PBS did a documentary called Code Rush in the late 90s on the releasing of Mozilla, and the interesting thing that Netscape did in the releasing of Mozilla was that they contracted in people that were part of the open source community to actively communicate what the open source community would get out of the launch of Mozilla. And I think when you're talking about the wait and see with regards to Linden Labs, this is the bit 
This is the, the disconnect that is being missed. It is not just a matter of putting the source online, releasing it open source and putting out a press release. There is a component, and I believe this is what Linden Labs will do in the near future. I believe this is what Bruce is alluding to with regards to his visit to Linden Labs. But it's a matter of also coming back to the open source community and saying, if you contribute this component that improves our graphics engine, you know, this will actually be of, of a group benefit for all folk creating avatar-based universes in the future. We, if we go back to a very interesting uh, episode where uh, I believe AOL created the community source license for Netscape initially, the, the Mozilla browser, something like that. Uh, AOL, I believe, acquired Netscape after the release of the Mozilla browser. So what happened was Mozilla was converted, whilst we're not privy to whether or not uh, Netscape and AOL were in communication, the Mozilla development was done prior to the acquisition by AOL. There was some tension, I know, initially uh, in the community source license, and I think eventually it was changed just to GPL, or maybe even LGPL. And then Sun uh, had a, a kind of, has been moving towards sort of community licensing for Java, for years, and there's been tension, say, between a big corporate user like IBM and Sun over the control of the standard and, and then the users. So, in a sense, when you, you have this appendage of an open source community effort attached to a corporation which has investors, you know, it, it does have a, a finite lifespan uh, to be able to operate uh, in, in this way. Uh, you have a different situation than when you have, a, say, a, a university group that kind of goes on under its own steam and its investors are its grants and its, uh, mm -hmm. its professors. Or you have a small firm like ours uh, where we have no investors other than our grants, but we don't have a, a, a pressing need, a pressing market need that's short-term. So it's, it, I'm just curious as to see, you know, uh, when I was at Linden Labs the last time, I I said, you know, you guys have to understand that regardless of how many users you have and how many, how much land that they own, how many linden bucks they own, ultimately you have to reach a break even so that your business is taking in as much cash as it, as it needs and you don't have to keep going for rounds of, of capital. If you're continuing to go for rounds of capital, you ultimately run out of that. Um, Communities.com which was one of the 1990s avatar uh, companies, was up to round K, I believe, before uh, the investors finally pulled the plug on it. So you, you have to, I think it, we have to see it in the business context. That's what I'm saying, really, the open source. And so people who are wanting to put a big investment, say, into Linden Lab's client and make cool things happen have to understand that if one day the investors pull the plug on the grid or pull the plug on Linden Labs and the grid goes down, then you, your client really isn't really worth anything. Your client investment, if the servers are no longer supported, it's very expensive to maintain those servers. And that, that kind of thing couldn't be taken on by a volunteer group. It's just too costly. There seem to be a number of metrics, Bruce. There's in one sense, the size of the user base. Another sense, there's the potential size or need of maintenance that you've described. And then the third 
is actually the size of Linden Labs itself relative to a company like Netscape or Apple or IBM or the companies that maintain long-term open-source projects and, and interface with the community. But when you went to Linden Labs, you mentioned that there are about 60 people at work at Linden Labs full-time, and the open-source effort, the sense that I get looking at the community is probably maybe half a dozen developers at most on their end. That requires a different kind of model than the model that we've discussed with regards to Mozilla and Netscape. What is your thinking, and this is really a, a secondary to tertiary kind of interpolation, but what is your thinking in terms of Linden Labs' medium-term strategy? I've read online the CEO saying that he was going to release the server open source once they fixed up some of the security issues. But do you think there is a, a medium-term play with regards to putting as much online open source as possible. And the second part of that question is, when you release something with a GPL, it develops a life in and of itself. It's not something that can then be taken away from the community once it's been given to the community. So what was your thinking in terms of Linden Lab's strategy, both with regards to medium-term strategy of releasing the server and also the connotations of releasing things under the GPL? I was rather surprised to tell you the truth by their announcement because they've recently had uh, people basically writing bots and hacking the environment and to my mind uh, you have to do a huge amount of thinking uh, about creating a safe environment for an open client to prevent people from creating an enormous hack that you could, that will bring down your entire network and I'm you know I know the kind of pressure these guys are under if you talk to Corey uh, Corey Andreka, I mean, he's the technology chief up there. I mean, they're going through the same growth pains that uh, YouTube was going through, where they're having to re-architect as they get more and more simultaneous uh, connections and bigger and bigger grid. I mean, they've done a good job on the architecture, but the last client that I downloaded um, yesterday, uh, a Second Life client, freezes. It freezes not only itself, but the entire my entire window system has to be hard hard restarted if I walk a few meters. So, in some sense, the 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 open I'm I'm not really quite sure that they're really ready for uh, an open source um, to handle the complexities of the user community uh, creating forks in the code and potentially somebody creating a hack. And I'm not sure I don't understand the timing. Um, my, to my mind, if, if you pull back a little bit, uh, efforts like Croquet 3D, which started in HP and is now at a university, um, I think that an effort to do an open source sort of metaverse, if you will, um, is probably best housed in a not-for-profit. Um, one of the concepts we've we've had for years is the Contact Consortium, which was established in 1995 and is the parent organization even of Biota, uh, could be sort of recast as a not-for-profit home for an open source uh, shared 3D world. One of the things, the concepts I've had is, is dumping the digital space open source uh, system into that effort. But it would seem to me that if you had a, very much like the Linux community with Linus Torvalds, if you had a, a committee of people working under an open source standards framework, uh, people are elected to the positions. They have a maybe they have a very small salary, uh, but there's many members of the consortium, 
and that that consortium probably has a better chance of, of making it long-term and making something that uh, meets all the needs. The, given the caveat is there, you need to have, you know, a handful of people are willing to go at it for 10 years, uh, relatively low compensation, but really passionately go at it. People who are very politically savvy and, and socially savvy uh, to keep a community like that together and technically savvy. Uh, like the Linux community has has gotten, that that really, to to my mind, that's the the best bet. I don't see an organization like that out there right now. Um, they the the open source volunteer effort seemed to come and go uh, within about a two year period is about the lifetime of of one of those. So, I, but I think back to Linden Labs. I'm sorry for going on and on here, but Linden Labs um, again, you know, it's. What is its business model if it open sources its client and its server and then experiences the complexity and potential hacks? It's not really going to be a very good thing for investors uh, to, to see. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. I, I just really don't quite understand it at this point. Well, that was, that was my discussion with regards to the metrics of both the people internally within Linden Labs maintaining it versus the community versus the user base, basically, that this is a kind of three-dimensional metric that just doesn't seem, doesn't seem right in my thinking either. Returning to the question at hand, in the prior recorded part of the podcast, we discussed briefly Steve Grant in terms of being the other model with CyberLife in terms of getting initial investment, creating a product, making money from that product, bringing in scientists, publishing papers, and supporting a community through a non-open source model. What's your thinking, because I know you, you spent some time with Steve, what's your thinking with regards to the CyberLife model, and do you think there is some benefit in that model that we are not seeing with, with an open source model? Definitely. I think that it's both... It was very, very impressive what, what Steve did and the, the uh, product that resulted, I mean, his thinking. He was definitely not a, a hard-nosed business type. The product was built, uh, it had a, uh, a lifetime, it had a window uh, where it had a user base and it was probably quite profitable. And then I think Creatures 2 came out and by that point there was, it was already on the declining curve as, as most game platforms go on these curves. You can maybe have a two-hump curve sometimes with the second release, but ultimately users jump on to other things and they don't stay around. So at the end, I th think the, the split of Steve from, from CyberLife, from the company, was not pleasant and he wasn't able to obtain, uh, I don't believe he was able to obtain the rights to continue the work on the original platform and perhaps he didn't want to, perhaps he was burned out on it. You know, I probably would be. Uh, so, in a sense, the culture of the, the big-brained person like Steve Grand, uh, the personal culture, the personalities, uh, perhaps didn't mesh over time, uh, and Steve was unable to continue the work. But, on the other hand, it produced something that was beautifully crafted, was a good experience for users, and had a lifetime. Um, I think if we look at something that's coming up this year, uh, look at Spore by Will Wright. Now that's going to be, I think, the greatest uh, test of this approach, which is the commercial platform, but fairly open, but crafted as a game so that it is financially self-sustaining in some way. Maybe there's a subscription model for Spore. But Spore is going to really teach us a lot. If, if Will Wright can make it work and have 
spore go on for years and keep evolving and keep keep people interested. If he can't do it, no one can. I think spore spore is an interesting example because. One of the interesting things about Cyberlife was that Steve Grant's ability to bring in scientists, hard-nosed scientists that would write papers, work with him, and then produce published papers. I think the model of contemporary game development is actually what bit Steve in the long run. And what interests me with Spore is that it's very much... Contemporary game development is very much the Hollywood model. The idea of version software really goes against contemporary game development. The, the big contrast to that, obviously, is World of Warcraft. Pedro, what is your thinking in terms of, is there any potential to marry the benefits of open source with the benefits of, of bringing in cash with proprietary software? Do you see any marrying of those two ideas? Uh, you, know, you mean bringing cash to open source? The Second Life model, in some regard, is based on there being a corporate component that collects money. Uh, World of Warcraft is another good example, although it's all closed. And then you have uh, an open source component that develops and improves the interface. Do you think, firstly, there's the subscription model, which is what Bruce alluded to briefly with the Spore example. There is the single purchase model, which is the uh, Steve Grand example. Can you see that there is a good symbiotic hybridization? I guess Linux is another good example. People actually pay money for Linux. They get it both through investment and through people paying money for it. Can you see artificial life moving into this kind of culture? I do not believe money has anything to do with open source. You, you have paid open source. You have uh, free open source, free as in beer. Uh, so I don't see any any problem in paying for for a service now you know it's it's i believe what's happening with software uh, i believe we we are experiencing with software what happened in the past with with real world i mean physical products services to emerge and now you 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 buy a car and you get a bunch of services attached to it and so I believe the the same thing is is happening with with software, and I believe it's going to be even more revolutionary in in software because with all this stuff of open source and free software and uh, people sharing software, uh, companies will at last understand that they won't be making profit from software itself, but from services attached to that software, and that's what big corporations are, are now starting to do. And but returning to the returning to the car analogy, I, I have a few questions about the analogies. I think what you've described is the free as in beer metaphor for open source. The problem with contemporary open source, and certainly artificial life open source, is that there is a component which is free as in free, as in absolutely no money. And it's not a situation where you are buying a car because there is no initial money up front. All you are doing is getting the labor part of the service for nothing. And this is the, the, the breakdown that corporations, corporate communities operate on money. That's their reality. That's what they drive. That's what drives them. It's actually dollar amount. So you can't say there is nothing about money in open source because corporations that use open source are saving money. 
that's what they're doing. They're, they're getting value for, for no money. So the service metaphor, how, how does that work out in your own thinking? No, I, I believe you, you misunderstood my point. I wasn't saying that uh, there's no money in open source. Uh, I, I was saying that, you know, there's the fact of a product being open source has nothing to do with actual money. You... you 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 can buy an open source product. You you can buy Linux like like you said. You, there are paid paid uh, Linux distributions. So I do not I don't believe that money has anything to do with it. But for a corporation, for a corporation like IBM, if they were to engineer Linux, it would cost them money. If they were to pay engineers to create Linux, it would cost them money. So the fact that there is this thing called Linux that is effectively free for them initially means that they're not paying engineers money, which means basically they get all this stuff for nothing, which they can then charge money for. So somewhere there, this is the, this is the value disconnect with regards to open source, somewhere there, something that a large community has put a lot of effort in pulling together is then worth something. So where does this value come in? For a corporation, where does this value come in in the open source model? And returning to the artificial life question, the metaphor of the free is in beer does not work with artificial life open source because, to my knowledge, there are no artificial life open source projects bar perhaps Framsticks where there is an academic component as well where the artificial life developers are actually making money from it being a service. So the metaphor for open source in artificial life needs to be very careful. You can't use the operating system analogy, but similarly the operating system analogy is also problematic because corporations treat open source like it's a product. For them, it is just money that they're saving. So how does this, how does this broad open source methodology resolve itself with regards to artificial life in your thinking? It works in a life as it works in everywhere else you 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 could start an, an open source a life product now and and just have a monthly subscription and have services attached to it i don't see any problem in it it's just product as it would be with any other software product it's okay it's you need the, the scientific knowledge you, you you need to to invest money on it and i believe that in the field you have the example that Bruce uh, provided uh, a while ago of the non-profit uh, organizations. You know, IBM does that with with Eclipse. You have Eclipse. Uh, it's not being it's not being uh, the development is done by a strict team, a restricted team, and then you have people contributing from all around the world, like you know in the in the main open source philosophy but all the investment comes from uh, the, the eclipse foundation which which is financed by ibm and primarily so i believe that open source could follow that way too you you could have a non-profit organization like biota for instance you could uh, could get some investors you know buy a bunch of servers and start uh, making your business out of it. It's, it's like any other project. <laughs> so what's your thinking on this, Bruce? What you've got is you've got several things going on. You've got a, a gradation of platforms. You've got to sort of use a sliding scale. You can say 
say you could use the multiverse network virtual world that's a commercial platform you could use which doesn't charge any anything upfront for their SDK so you can develop an alife environment there and only when you start to sell it you start to pay for them so that's kind of the the code is kind of free because if you're never charging for it you can still you can still use it even though you don't control the code down to fully open source where you're kind of dependent like we are we're dependent on the developers of Ogre 3D Open Dynamic Engine and all the other components that we've put together and if any one of those goes away we have to make a big investment to to change something or fix something it's been good so far but it's a lot of labor we could have bought Unreal Tournament or Unreal 3 or Unreal 4 but we would have had to pay several hundred thousand dollars. But we've got a world-class environment, which we could have developed all our NASA applications in. But because we don't have access to code, uh, if we needed something very specific for NASA, we'd be at a stopping point. So in a, in a sense, uh, you, all of this is going to keep shifting. You're going to have the open source components come back in five years. There will be different and stronger open source components there will be, you know, commercial game engines or investor-backed uh, game engines and 3D engines and, and 3D protocols uh, will be better. They'll always be just slightly, certainly ahead of, of open source L, uh, components. And really what it comes down to is if you, if you keep looking at that, you'll always be wondering what to do. Whereas I think what, what A-Life needs is and this is was goes back to the VRML days and people may, uh, who are listening to the podcast may remember the virtual reality modeling language. Uh, it was a cool technology in search of applications, and no matter what they did, no matter that the fact that they may have open sourced a VRML browser for the web, that they may have had investor backed uh, VRML companies like InterVista, or they had a large corporate entity called Silicon Graphics Inc that put a lot of money in back the standard. They had all that, but they didn't have enough of a market, even in, in terms of grants in academia or uh, a commercial market, to sustain uh, the effort, and it all kind of collapsed. So, so in a sense, um, even if you're completely open source, if you don't have sort of a pressing need that people have, you know, when Linus Torvalds developed Linux, he kind of must have felt that, hey, a Linux running on a standard 386 machine giving you the full Unix capabilities but on a PC has got to be useful for for somebody and and that's what drove Linux for years the fact that hey it was like why buy an expensive Unix workstation when I can just put this thing and get all the same services on a a clone PC that I can build myself and and so the A-Life movement or the Biota uh, efforts actually have to generate something that creates a, a population of, of passionate users and a passionate developers. And if we use a commercial platform, we may get a better feature set and we may, may get better support. If we use an open source platform, we may get a cost savings and maybe more longevity. But really, it's irrelevant until we find a compelling application to generate that population of, of passionate users. I've been in correspondence with John Klein over the past week. In the last podcast, I mentioned to Gerald briefly at the conclusion of the podcast that he should look into John Klein's Breve environment 
and John and I have been bouncing back ideas over the past week in terms of what the, the needed interface will be for this kind of shared artificial life environment, which really touches on your discussions as well, Bruce, in terms of digital space. So I think as a community we can come together on some kind of idea of a shared environment, but it's then, and this was what I found fascinating with your analysis, Bruce, a matter of getting the people involved, getting the user base involved, things like that. Does open source implicitly have a user base that comes with it, and is the proprietary model with advertising and these kind of additional things that bring more people in with people that are actively professional PR people, these kind of things. I mean, I see these two uh, methods being, being in opposition in terms of how they actually get folk involved. There's the term in the US that I use frequently called astroturf. And what it is, is it's a perception of a grassroots movement that has been completely paid for and created. And looking around, and I've thought about this quite recently with regards to the kind of broader aims of biota, there is so much astroturf out there, in the US market at least, that it's very difficult to kind of put my little grass stalk a little bit above the created astroturf in order to get the message of biota out. There are companies, and this recently uh, bit Dave Kerr. Dave Kerr was talking last podcast about being a part of a project in Canada which was supposed to get independent game development, and it appears what happened instead was a whole lot of existing American, French, and Canadian games companies created little breakaway teams. So they actually got commercial game developers out there to get this public funding and completely defeated the whole purpose. I see in terms of getting a user base together for any kind of shared artificial life environment, it's critical, and this comes back to things like Will Wright's Spore, for uh, there to be a way to get the users actively involved, and things like Spore do not feed back into the broader artificial life community unless Will Wright changes the, the way that he's been speaking about Spore to date. So I'm thinking on one side, open source, and this is what I found with Noble Ape, this is why I'm talking to you currently, Petro, is about basically getting a grassroots community together. It's about communicating with people and not having this kind of astroturf metaphor where you pay you know, PR companies and try to create this grassroots community. But the same, uh, I mean, I, I see that there is just a problem between these two methods that I've tried to allude to in my discussion. What's your thinking in those terms? I believe that open source eventually will 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 get through it. You know, it's it's true that you you it's very it's very hard to, to, to get a community and very hard to 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 base a project on your effort and your a uh, small user base. But people are are beginning to to understand that in the end, open source and free software and all the the flaws efforts are for public benefit and even governments and government agencies are uh, around the world are uh, starting to to use open source and it's kind of getting some some good so, some good publicity uh, i believe that okay you you it's it will be difficult it's you have you you you're fighting against corporations. You're fighting against people who have advertising and have uh, guys working for them uh, to 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 make the, their marketing. But well, it's it's a matter of ideas. You you have great things out there that 
were born were born of nothing were were just uh, just nice ideas you, you you know google for instance it's it's it was a student project it's 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 not a it's it didn't start as a uh, a, a giant corporation as it is now it's okay it's not open source it's not it's not the same thing but i believe that uh, above all in, independently of the the development and and uh, the business model you, you choose if you have a good idea and you have a good project you'll eventually get a way of supporting it and you'll eventually get a big community that's and that's what matters now in in the web in, in the internet in general it's not that there isn't a case where occasionally good ideas organic ideas do percolate the problem is that there is so much bad noise basically that getting it above getting it to that critical level where you are rising above the bad noise is, is the problem. I think this is what Bruce was alluding to in terms of the ideas of, of a user base. Bruce, in the world of AstroTurf, what is your thinking in terms of motivating a, an organic user base towards artificial life? Getting the, getting the user population up? Yes. There's a couple ways of thinking about it. One could, for instance, um, go into something like Second Life or World of Warcraft, it have, if it has an open API, and put in the brains, say for instance, take Noble Ape, take the brains from Noble Ape and the brains and guts, and make it, and try it out in a multi-user space, and that already has a population, and see who, who shows up and kicks the tires. Um, so effectively you're bringing artificial life, or you're bringing biota to platforms, uh, you're bringing techniques like L-system plants, like noble apes, um, other things, and you're saying, "Well, we'll bring we'll bring these techniques to any platform that comes up, but we'll evolve them over time." So if Second Life goes away, and there's something else, you you pack your bags and you pack your gen genetic codes, and you go in and 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 instance them in another platform. Uh, and, and so you're evolving your technique in the platforms as they rise and fall, which is the current pattern of, of all multi-user spaces is the rise and fall of user populations. So you're effectively saying follow the populations, don't worry about the platforms, but develop your techniques through time. Um, the other way, of course, is to create, I think, um, you know, either tag yourself on like Jeffrey Contrella did for a while, or like several of us have done, is connect to an investor-funded, you know, open, uh, not necessarily open-source environment, get a brain trust together and create a really cool world like Creatures, and that'll go for a while, and then will disappear. But you get a chance to perfect techniques. The third approach, um, you know, and those commercial ventures uh, may or may not be successful either, the third approach is to get a brain trust together and make a really cool environment that is multi-user but has some cool kind of lifelike metaphors in it and see who will come. So I think that really those, you know, and, and hope that you don't run out of energy before enough users show up that uh, that, that donate to your shareware uh, bank account that uh, you, you lose interest. Uh, so I really think that those are the three those are the three possible pathways. I think if there's anything that is shared in the artificial life experience, it is this idea of patience as a, as a developer. 
it's the idea that you really are developing in not even a medium term but a very long term context. In that metaphor, it seems that all this is, is very possible. Returning to the Jeffrey Ventrella example, I find him fascinating in my correspondence with him because he has not put any of his stuff open source so far, yet he has a strong following. He's, I think, the only artificial life link that is still active on Richard Dawkins' site, and he's been able to move his ideas and development into something which has, has maintained over a long period of time without being open source. So there is this kind of giving away the software but keeping the source code what is your thinking on that model, Bruce? And then also I'll, I'll ask Pedro the same question. It's, it's almost as though if you, if you look at the, the one example that really jumps out at me is when I was at the Santa Fe Institute visiting in the summer of 1994, uh, basically I was in Chris Langton's swarm lab and they had just gotten uh, Mosaic uh, to run on their local sun workstations. Uh, and one of the first sites I went to was a, a page by Carl Sims, a thinking machine site, where they downloaded um, the MPEGs to play his, his blocky swimming creatures. And for me, that was a sort of an, a moment of epiphany because I said, here they are, you know, potent, the potential marriage of the Internet, of, of a big sp Internet space and potential evolving creatures, even though all we were seeing was an MPEG, but it was a suggestion that it was going to happen one day in a virtual world online, probably, and I thought, with users. Um, but what turns out was already by 1994, those evolving blocky creatures were already extinct. Uh, connection machines were no longer being sold or even serviced, I think, by that point. And that site was about to go down a couple of years later completely and go offline. And so, but what was left was a publications uh, by Carl that showed enough, had enough detail on how those creatures were, were created that other people could create the blocking evolving creatures. And you can see them in the, meta, in the um, Metaverse tool set. You can see them in Carl Sims' work of about five years ago. They're in Brevet too. In Brevet. So effectively, you know, the original creatures are now fossils, but what was important was the publication of the methodologies. And so, for instance, if you know, I, and maybe Steve Grant has published more, Chris Winter may have published more about this, but the creature's brains, and it's certainly Polyworld, the fact that it was published. So even if Jeffrey Ventrella doesn't want to put Darwin Pond up on complete open source, if there's a publication of here's what I did, here's my algorithms, here's my experience, mm -hmm. take it from here, uh, that, that probably, uh, for Biota as, as an organization, Maybe what I'm coming to here is if we can collect meaningful publications that guide future experimentation and, and give as full, an exp full a background and methodology as possible, that may be one of the best ways of moving artificial life and biota forward, uh, even if we're not even talking about source code, just a collection of good publications. So we've been able to bring things full circle I think this is probably a good point to conclude the formal part of the podcast. Pedro, you're heading to Switzerland. I'm doing my internship uh, at at CERN. I'm, I'm heading uh, to there. I'm going there. Uh, I'll start working at at the beginning of March, and I'm I'll be working on an open source project called 
Indico, which is a, an information system for conference and conference handling and um, conference media storage and stuff like that. I believe it's it will be for sure a great experience to to be at CERN. It's uh, a great place and. Uh, there's a great scientific community there, and, and now there's all this uh, all this um, hype around the, the the LHC, the the new particle accelerator, and uh, I believe it's going to be great. Bruce, exciting times for digital space. Well, um, I'm actually embarking this year on a multi-country uh, lecture tour. Uh, starting uh, next Friday at uh, Modesto Junior College here in the Central Valley in California, and then following, yeah, it's kind of our out-of-town tryout, and then at Industrial Light and Magic on February 8th, where it's, I'm doing a talk for all the Lucas companies uh, in their auditorium uh, on basically the birth of the virtual worlds medium, uh, how it compares with other medium, media like the early cinema, early film, uh, the, the phases of development of the virtual world medium, and then talking about um, how it's a tremendously powerful industrial technology, you know, for things like design engineering, like we're doing with NASA, because they're very interested in the space stuff, and talking about biota, talking about how does this possibly, how does this new medium of shared virtual spaces that are populated, how does it actually tie into evolution and future of life on Earth? And this is where the biota vision will come in. If it becomes a space where life can express itself in evolutionary terms, it's a very big step for the planet. So I'll leave off on that kind of philosophical note. But that this tour will go to four countries in Europe and then continue to many, many institutions after that. Um, what this is all leading up to is the launch of the Virtual Worlds Timeline Project, which you can see the pro the mission statement at vwtimeline.org, uh, and that's an attempt to produce a public wiki with a graphical timeline that anyone can upload uh, his historic elements, such as, say, the story of Darwin Pond, or the story of Active Worlds, or Second Life, or Maze War from the 70s, and stuff like that, so that there will be a place to go to say, how did the, how does this virtual worlds uh, medium uh, where did it come from? Who did what when? How do things tie together? What about papers about Carl Sims' blocky creatures? What about growing, you know, having creatures inside cyberspace? Because they're really, this is a very ephemeral medium, and things are lost quickly. As we know, if, if, the, if the individual passes away, then you're really losing most of their archive of their work in some cases. Uh, so this is a sort of a multi-pronged strategy to say, Let's let's create an archive, sort of an Alexandrian library of the virtual world's medium uh, and include the, the biota vision in there. If you would like to participate in biota.org conversations, contact me, tom at noble8.com. Any feedback, any comments, any ideas for future podcasts, that email address again, tom at noble8.com. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Look forward to you tuning into the next podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening.